Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. gentlemen, and welcome to the Intact Financial Corp Q2 2021 Results Conference Call. At this time, all lines are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. If at any time during this call you require immediate assistance, please press star zero for the operator. Also note that this call is being recorded on Wednesday, July 28, 2021. And I would like to turn the conference over to Ken Anderson, Executive Vice President, Investor Relations and Corporate Development. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Sylvie. Good morning, everyone, and thank you all for joining the call today. A link to our live webcast and published information for this call is posted on our website at intactfc.com under the Investors tab. As usual, before we start, please refer to slide two for cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements, which form part of this morning's remarks, and slide three for a note on the use of non-IFRS financial measures, and important notes on adjustments, terms, and definitions used in this presentation. With me here in Montreal today, we have our CEO, Charles Brindemore, our CFO, Louis Marcotte, our Chief Operating Officer, Patrick Barbeau, Isabel Gerard, SVP of Personal Lines, and Darren Godfrey, EVP, of Global Specialty Lines. Sorry, it's uh, Isabel Gerard, EVP uh, of um, Personal Lines. We'll begin with prepared remarks followed by Q&A. With that, I'll turn the call to Charles. Thanks, Ken. Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. Our communities have made great progress over the past few months and we're hopeful for a gradual return to normalcy as we emerge from the pandemic. For us, this means continuing to be there for our customers and helping our people adapt to a new work environment. It's reassuring to see that in an important period of change and turbulence, our business can not only be resilient, but also thrive and grow. Clearly, the successful acquisition of RSA is a good example of this, and we're quite pleased with the progress we've made so far. But in the meantime, our business is continuing to deliver strong performance. Yesterday evening, we announced second quarter net operating income per share of $3.26, a 39% increase over Q2 last year, driven by strong underwriting and distribution results. Top-line growth of 29% was driven by the acquisition of RSA, with approximately seven points of organic growth reflecting strength in commercial lines on both sides of the border. The overall combined ratio was 86.7%, driven by strong performances across all lines and geographies. In Canada, the combined ratio was excellent at 85%, driven by strength in underlying performance. The combined ratio included one point from the tragic Lytton fire. Our claims team and on-site business have mobilized very quickly to help the community get through this difficult time. Let's now look at our results by line of business, starting right here with Canada. 
In personal auto, premium grew 1% year over year. Excluding the BC Auto exit, growth was 3% driven by units. The combined ratio is very strong at 82.4%. Our personal auto business is solid, and we expect it to hit low 90s for the remainder of the year. Looking at the industry, we're seeing prudent rate tempering in the current environment. And with driving activity just five points below pre-COVID levels, we could see rate momentum return over the next 12 months. In personal property, premiums grew 5%, driven by firm market conditions. With a very strong combined ratio of 83.3% in the quarter, the business is performing extremely well. Our upper 80s track record in the past five years is a testament to the resilience of this business. In commercial lines, premiums grew 12% driven by rate actions and solid organic growth while delivering a strong 89.6% combined ratio. Looking at the industry, we expect hard market conditions to continue. And our commercial lines business is really well positioned to deliver low 90s or better performance going forward. Moving to our U.S. commercial business, premiums grew a strong 19% in the quarter, benefiting from increased activity in COVID-impacted lines versus 2020. Adjusting for this, the underlying growth in Q2 is in the low double-digit range supported by the continued hard market conditions. The combined ratio at 90.3% was solid as the team continues to execute on the objective to deliver sustainable low 90s performance. Turning to our RSA acquisition, a lot has happened since we closed seven weeks ago. People are largely onboarded with their roles, teams, and locations confirmed. Customers in Canada will start to move to our product and systems next week. A number of technology investment decisions have been made and are rolling. Action plans are in place across all segments to drive out performance. And we acted quickly to rationalize the footprint with the sale of Denmark. So it's fair to say that there's momentum. Now let me provide a bit more color on Canada, specialty lines, and the UK and I parts of the integration as well as transition. In Canada, the integration is going really well. We're advancing on systems conversions with the first policy renewal on intact paper to be issued in August, allowing us to leverage our core capabilities in data, pricing, and segmentation. We're building capacity to drive the internalization of RSA's claims operation, and we're starting to leverage our supply chain management expertise as well. This includes engaging our on-site restoration business to handle a large portion of RSA's claims since close. The Canadian integration is definitely on track. It's key as this drives three quarters of the synergies. Moving to global specialty lines, the North American portfolio is being integrated as we speak with Paul Lucarelli, originally from RSA leading the charge. We're bringing the global network into the fold, which allows us to expand our reach. And we're working across our geographies to better understand our core specialty lines capabilities as we prepare to build our international franchise. We see the expanded specialty lines platform as one of our key growth engines 
for the next decade. Moving to the UK and I, so following the close, a few members of the IFC team and I spent three weeks in the UK engaging with Scott and the RSA team. And together we're aligned on the main areas that we need to excel to build out performance. People, simplifying the business, improving pricing sophistication, and modernizing technology. First on people, Scott has put a, together an excellent team and we're delighted to be working with them to continue their journey towards building an outperformance machine. Together we've set midterm strategic objectives for the business and we've had the opportunity to share our values and the importance of an outperformance mindset. We're also supporting the team as they simplify the business by focusing the footprint streamlining the offering and technology infrastructure, the operations will build a robust foundation for outperformance that in my view can deliver second to none customer experience. We also have a number of experts working closely with the UK team to share our expertise in pricing, risk selection, machine learning, as well as claims management. Overall in the UK and I am pleased with the progress so far. The RSA team has done tremendous work over the past couple of years and are already delivering solid performance. And we have great momentum and people are engaged. We've talked about focusing the footprint and we move quickly right after the close to announce the sale of the Denmark business, which is expected to complete in the first half of 2022. The sale will generate over 1.2 billion in proceeds to intact, which lifts our, our IRR expectations by at least 1.5 points for the RSA acquisition. While we're integrating RSA, our teams haven't missed a beat in executing on our customer-driven strategies. On the digital front, we're continually adding new feature on our mobile app to create value for our customers driving engagement throughout their journey with Intact. We added roadside assistance to provide enhanced protection for our customers, and our recently launched claims chatbot now handles close to 90% of the digital chats with our customers. Our distribution channels are also delivering on our customer-driven promise. BrokerLink is now writing over 2.3 billion of premiums annually, an increase of over 25% since 2019. And with a robust M&A pipeline, we think that Joe D'Annunzio and team can double that business over the next five years. There's a lot going on and the business is firing on all cylinders. Over the last year, we've made very good progress on all fronts. Throughout the pandemic, we've lived our values and delivered on our purpose to help people, businesses and society prosper in good times and be resilient in bad times. We've also transformed our business with the addition of RSA, all the while continuing to deliver second to none customer experiences. This would not be possible with, without our people, and I want to thank them for their continued drive, focus, and energy. We've added an impressive amount of talent and expertise through the RSA acquisition, and I want to welcome everyone into the Intact family. Our business has a lot of momentum, our balance sheet is very strong. We have a clear focus on what we need to achieve, and I'm more confident than ever in our ability to deliver on our promise to customers 
meet our financial objectives of 10% NOx growth annually over time and 500 basis points of ROE outperformance every year. With that, I'll turn the call over to our CFO, Louis Marcotte. Thanks, Charles, and good morning, everyone. After six months of planning together, on June 1st, we closed the RSA transaction and welcomed RSA's Canadian, UK, and international employees to the Intact family. Financially, not only is the deal immediately accretive to net operating income per share, it also brings increased resilience to our balance sheet. Strategically, it expands our leadership position in Canada, bolsters our specialty lines capabilities, and opens up new markets in the UK and Ireland at scale. I will provide some more color on the financial impacts from RSA shortly, but first let me make a few comments on our strong second quarter results. Net operating income to common shareholders increased by 49% year over year, with all earning sources contributing to this growth. Underwriting income grew 63% compared to last year to $464 million, as strong underlying performances across the business continued, reflecting the benefits of our actions over time, mild weather conditions, and the impact of RSA. Net investment income of $154 million increased by 9% year over year. For the full year, we still expect net investment income to be flat before including the, ex- the impact of RSA, which will add roughly $100 million to 2021 net investment income, including the $13 million recorded in the month of June. Distribution EBITDA and other income grew an impressive 51% in a quarter, driven by, by better-than-expected variable commissions, as well as solid organic and M&A growth. We expect growth in the second half of the year to taper towards a 10 to 12% range as we compare against a strong second half of 2020. Although RSA was included in our results for one month only, it added $57 million of underwriting income and $13 million of investment income to our operating earnings. After reflecting financing costs and dilution from the shares issued, the net operating income per share accretion is high single digit for the month of June. We expect to maintain a similar level for the second half of the year. Looking at underwriting results in a little more detail, healthy favorable prior year development contributed to our strong results in the quarter and year to date. We have been and continue to be prudent in establishing current year reserves, particularly considering uncertainties related to COVID. We maintain our longer term expectation that favorable PYD will be in the range of 1% to 3% of reserves annually for the intact group in aggregate. Depending on how and when the uncertainties unwind, we expect to see favorable development in the upper half of the range in the shorter term. In personal auto, the underlying loss ratio of 59.6% was strong, despite the impact of premium relief and reflects our actions over time. The relief program launched in March March is now closed, and we returned an additional, additional $30 million to customers in Q2, bringing the total program in 2021 to $105 million. Looking at commercial lines in Canada, the underlying loss ratio of 51.3% is the best performance we have delivered to date. In the U.S., the underlying loss ratio of 51.6% was strong, driven by corrective underwriting and profitability actions, as well as rate gains across the book. Momentum in commercial lines is strong on both sides of the border and well-positioned for low 90s or better performance over time. On expenses, the overall Canadian expense ratio of 32.9% for the first half of the year increased 2.2 points over last year. 
This was driven by higher variable commissions, consistent with the strong underwriting performance in the first half of the year. The combined ratio of 90.7% for RSA in June was solid, driven by underwriting performances in both Canada and the UK and I. These results are also largely the result of lower frequency, mild weather, and profitability actions offset by elevated CAD losses in Canada. Although one should not assume that results for June are indicative of full-year results, we are pleased with the results so far and are increasingly confident in our ability to deliver the earnings accretion we promised. We are entering the second half of the year on solid footing. While closely monitoring driving habits as people progressively go back to their offices, as well as CAT activity. In terms of RSA's underwriting results for the second half of the year, we believe the best starting point on top line is to use half of the premiums of 2020 as reported in their annual report for both Canada and the UK and I. The combined ratio is difficult to predict, of course, but we would use the 2019 as the base year to exclude the impact of COVID in 2020. Both Canada and UK and I reported combined ratios in the mid-90s range. If you shave a point or two for profitability improvements already achieved and add a bit of synergies, you have a good idea where RSA's underwriting results should land in the second half of the year. Keep in mind, it's important to anchor any expectations with our accretion estimates. To further de-risk the acquisition, we entered into a transaction with a reputable reinsurer. Subject to specific exclusions and limitations, this agreement provides us with a recovery of 50% of adverse development up to 400 million pounds on the UK and I claims liabilities for 2020 and prior accident years. The net cost of, the, of this reinsurance will be recorded in Q3 2021. With the addition of RSA, it is also appropriate to revise our annual estimates for CATs, which reflect a long-term view of trends. We are raising our annual CAT expectation from $300 million to $570 million per year to reflect the growing premium base and change in business mix. We now expect two-thirds to impact personal lines and continue to expect one-third of the annual CATs to occur in each of Q2 and Q3. Having said that, one month into Q3, we have experienced a couple of weather events which will translate into CAT losses for the third quarter. As of today, based on early estimates, these losses are within our revised CAT guidance. On synergies, we are on track to realize the stated $250 million in run rate synergies within 36 months, largely generated from claims internalization and consolidation of shared services. We continue to expect integration and restructuring costs for the transaction to run at 1.5 to 1.7 times the annual run rate synergies. In the second quarter, we recorded approximately 35 million of these costs, and we expect to incur half the cost by the end of 2021. The remainder will be recorded progressively over 2022 and 2023. These costs are reported as non-operating results and do not include the net cost of the adverse development cover. Moving to our balance sheet, on closing of the acquisition, we recorded the acquired assets and liabilities of RSA at fair value, together with the associated transaction financing. Coupled with our strong performance in the quarter, this took our book value per share to $77.67 on June 30th, an increase of 44% compared to Q2 last year and up 25% compared to last quarter. Our operating ROE increased to 19.8% in the 12 months 
to June 30th. For full year 2021 and going forward, we are aiming, to, we are aiming for a mid-teens operating ROE level in line with our historical average. Our financial position continues to be strong. We closed a quarter having incorporated the RSA acquisition with approximately 2.6 billion in total capital margin, a healthy buffer to absorb potential shocks. On a debt to total capital, our debt to total capital was just above 24% at the end of the quarter, better than we projected thanks to the strength in our book value. Deleveraging will accelerate in 2022 as we expect to use most of the proceeds from the sale of Denmark assuming it closes, to reduce our debt and, re and reach our 20% target earlier than planned. With the acquisition close and integration and synergy realization underway, we are on track to generate high single-digit accretion to net operating income per share in the first 12 months, moving to upper teens within 36 months. We've produced an excellent set of results for the first half of the year while accelerating our strategic roadmap. Our focus is now on capitalizing upon the momentum across the business while delivering on the strategic and financial merits of the RSA transaction. With the strength of our teams and our platform, we are well positioned to deliver on our financial objectives in the years ahead. Before giving it back to Ken, I will take a second here to thank our teams in finance, actuarial, legal, and IR on both sides of the Atlantic for their significant effort over the past months to produce quality financial information for investors on a timely basis. I'm very proud of what the teams have achieved, and I want to thank them for their contribution. With that, I'll give it back to Ken. Thanks, Louis. In order to give everyone a chance to participate in the Q&A, we would ask that you kindly limit yourselves to two questions per person. Of course, if there's time at the end, you can certainly requeue for follow-up. So, Sylvie, we're ready to take questions now. Certainly. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a question at this time, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will then hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. And if you would like to withdraw your question, simply press star followed by two. And if you're using a speakerphone, we do ask that you please lift a handset before pressing any keys. Please go ahead and press star one now if you have a question. And your first question will be from Jeff Kwan at RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, good morning. Um, my first question was on personal auto. Um, you know, I think you've talked in the past about uh, potential for uh, premium increases um, when driving returns to more normal levels, but I was curious around how much the combined ratio may also influence the timing of, of any sort of premium increases. So, for example, like if we get driving back to normal, um, that presumably from a timing perspective, the, the combined ratio is probably going to increase in a reasonable amount of time. But what if we have a scenario where driving's back to normal, but the combined ratio remains better than before? Do you worry about any sort of potential optics, you know, for the industry uh, from consumers around increasing premiums if if traffic is back to normal and the combined ratios remain better than usual? Jeff, uh, good morning. Thanks for the question. I'm not worried about that. This market is super competitive. It's always been very competitive. The industry, on in average, has been a single-digit ROE uh, business, and catching up with cost, you know, in a highly competitive environment has been, has been a challenge for the industry. You know, that's why our performance is the name of the game in that business, and that's why, you know, we've built a big outperformance margin uh, in automobile insurance. So my, my perspective, um, 
you know, the industry entered into the crisis with a meaningful amount of work left to be done to deal with the things that we were focused on since 2016. Think about uh, inflation on the liability side of things, inflation and physical damage. We've put much of that work uh, behind us. I don't think it's the case at the industry level. You don't need to go back too far to see that the industry, even in uh, 2020, had adverse development uh, and still, you know, poor results in the first uh, in the first half. So I, I'm not really worried about that. I think the industry is is quite uh, competitive. I think, you know, what people should be uh, focused on in my mind is to make sure that you know prices are adequate when when driving returns to normal, taking into account the pressure that uh, existed in the system before COVID. So uh, not worried about that. Jeff, uh, one bit, and I, I feel like we're really well positioned with the work we've done on relief, uh, our pricing position, and the flexibility we've covered to react uh, when the time comes. Okay, and just my second question was uh, with respect to the RSA acquisition for the non-Canadian um, businesses that, that you acquired, I know I think you've talked about evaluating them over the next year, but have you are you able to say whether or not there's been any third parties that have approached you with interests about some or, or all of those assets? Well, clearly when there is a transaction of that nature, um, uh, first of all, you know, many people were surprised uh, by the transaction. Yes, you get inbound calls uh, from time to time. I think that uh, we said very clearly at, at the start of this transaction that we would evaluate our strategic options for Denmark. We did, and uh, we acted on on the inbound uh, that we've received, you know, a couple of weeks after closing. Um, as far as the rest of the platform is concerned, we're really focused on building out performance here and making sure that, um, that uh, we're being rewarded for the risk and the capital that's being deployed. Clearly, the UK is the biggest part of this, and we're focused on building out performance there, and there's good traction. We have a very good team. Okay, thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Did you have any further questions? Yeah, no, that was it. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Kwan. Next question will be from Paul Holdit at CIBC. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my first question also relates to personal auto. And Charles, you gave you gave an outlook for the remainder of the year, but it's a little bit different than what we've seen from some of the U.S. auto insurers, where they've sort of seen a spike in uh, claims or accident frequency related to uh, returned activity, and then also have called out um, an acceleration in severity. So wondering how your outlook is different than the U.S. insurers, and maybe specifically uh, drill down a little bit more on what you're seeing on the uh, severity trends today. 
Good. Well, uh, good morning, Paul. Thanks for your question. Obviously, if you compare frequency in Q2 2021 with frequency in Q2 2020, you'll see an increase. It's obvious. The state of the world was very different a year ago uh, than you see now. So I think that one needs to look past, uh, you know, what happened Q2 over Q2 and, and look at where driving is going and then look at where uh, inflation is going. And so what I'm thinking, Paul, maybe we start with Isabel, who will give us her perspective on what we're seeing in terms of activity, and then Patrick will take us through what we're seeing on the severity and inflation side of things. So Isabel, why don't you uh, take this? Yeah, so in terms of driving, what we see uh, with the latest waves of COVID in 2021, we saw some reduced driving in the spring 2021, but as you were mentioning, Charles, nothing to the extent we saw in the spring of last year in 2020 where we were in full lockdown. Having said that, driving activity is on the rise since early May, and we're now sitting about uh, just five points below the pre-COVID levels of, of driving. So as, as vaccination continue to progress, we expect that the driving will also continue to rise in the coming weeks. Uh, having said that, um, uh, looking at the average uh, of driving, we can think that we're close to normal, but normality may be a bit different uh, in the coming months. So we've been looking closely at uh, various data coming from our telematics, and while number of miles driven is one factor that changed with the pandemic, there's also other uh, habits that have changed. So when people are driving, when, uh, where people are driving and how people is, are driving are examples of things that we saw some changes during the pandemic. So uh, a few examples of things that we observed that are not necessarily back to normal yet. Uh, rush hours and congestions are examples of things that when we look at the weekends, we're pretty much at historical levels. But when we're looking on the weekdays, especially for the rush hour morning, uh, we see that we're still below uh, historical levels. Uh, we also have observed that driving has been recovering uh, faster than public transit usage and in the last few weeks, so we have seen public transit uh, picking up. So those are examples of things that uh, we're continuing to follow and we believe with our data we'll be ready uh, to quickly identify any new trends that may last post-pandemic and adapt our, our pricing accordingly. Thanks, Isabel. Patrick, maybe we can uh, talk about inflation. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, also the main driver of inflation on severity continues to be uh, the technology in cars. That increases the cost of parts and the complexity of the repair process. But this is not something new in our view. We've been talking about it for a while. It was central to our action plan two or three years ago. And it continues to uh, put pressure on, on severity. Uh, it is important to mention that we can quickly reflect this trend in our pricing. Given our price, uh, you know, is specific to each make, model, and year. So as new models come out in the market, we leverage our claimed uh, data to price that complexity in the parts and repair process, even before, I would say, the claims uh, experience actually shows it. Uh, we supported that with our uh, actions in, in claims and supply chain to allow to mitigate that trend over the past couple of years. Uh, so overall, you know, we've seen mid-single-digit increase in repair costs over the past year. With regards to uh, maybe the, the price of new cars and the inflation uh, of used uh, cars, 
it, it is there. But again, here our pricing can adjust very quickly on the new cars, as well as re uh, representing the, the, the depreciation patterns, if you want, in older model years. Um, maybe my last comment is overall in Q2, you know, when we look at both our experience here in Canada and in the UK, the total losses, which is where we settle the claims based on market value instead of repairing the car, has seen a low single-digit inflation rate, so about half what we see in the cost of repair. Thanks for that, Patrick. Yeah, so we try uh, to make sure that, you know, uh, what we read in the newspaper is not what we talk about in the earnings calls. We have a fair bit of granularity here, and I'll say there's a lot of moving pieces at the moment, and that's the sort of environment that we love because the pricing strategy that we have is super uh, uh, focused uh, and segmented to take into account behaviors. And on the inflation front, you know, I think uh, Patrick and team have done a fair bit to tame some of that inflation over the past few years, and a big chunk of it is reflected in our pricing thought process. And the last point I'll make is that there is flexibility at the moment in terms of our ability to react uh, and I think the team is on top of that. Got it. Okay. And then my second question is related to the revised uh, cat loss guidance. Are you able to unpack how much of that is related to the RSA acquisition and how much of it is related to um, increase in, in expected claims trends? Yeah. Paul, um, there, there's not much in terms of increased expected trend. I think it's the makeup of the, the business uh, at this stage. But I'll let we give you a bit of color on that. Well, I think that's that's the answer. It's mostly RSA driven. Uh, so you're taking into account the, the addition of the Canadian exposures into our Canadian expectations, and then the addition of the UK perimeter as well, with maybe a slightly different uh, business mix. When you combine that, this is what drove the increase we uh, we shared with uh, with you today. So it's it's much largely the uh, the RSA impact uh, that we took into account. And if I can ask just a quick follow on on up on that answer, then is the mix also different within RSA Canada? It looks like there's a little bit more cat exposure within their book versus Intax Legacy book. Is that is that accurate? No, I would say the uh, uh, when we refer to the change in the mix, it's more adding the UK volume that's more uh, has a bigger weight on property so forecast it has a bit more than its share from a volume perspective but the books in Canada uh, don't have a, a big difference it's mostly proportional okay got it thank you thank you next question will be from Doug Young at Desjardins Capital Markets please go ahead hi good morning it was stated in the release that there's regulatory reforms coming in the UK that could result in some you know, volatility and opportunities for RSA's personal line business, and, and I think that's early next year. So I just wanted to delve a little bit into that. More specifically, what do you mean by volatility and, and opportunities? Well, good morning, Doug, and uh, you're right. Yeah, th these reforms are... Um, <clears throat> reforms that uh, will, will take effect largely at the end of the year, you know, and, and therefore early January. Um, they're driven by the uh, FCA, so Market Conduct Regulator in the um, in the UK. Let me give you a bit of context to understand what the intention is there, and then maybe share 
uh, my view on on what it means for the marketplace, and this will help answer, uh, you know, opportunity and, and volatility uh, are the words that you're interested in. I think if you look at the UK purse lines market, because this is largely about purse lines, you've seen massive, massive shifts in distribution, you know, over the past couple of decades. It's really driven the market to be a price-only type market. Um, and as a result, you see that customer retention or loyalty is much lower than, than what we're observing in other markets and certainly here uh, in Canada. And, um, and there's a lot of pressure to attract new customers at low prices. And so when you put all that together over time, a meaningful disconnect has been created between new customer pricing and existing customers pricing, which in effect, you know, uh, penalizes loyalty. So obviously that's a problem. And, um, and the FCA reforms, well, are a few pieces that is the big issue in my mind. It's, it really aims at restoring a better balance between new business and renewal pricing. We think it makes sense, actually, and we support the intent uh, of the regulator. There's debate as to you know, how the rules will be applied and so on, as there always is, but we think the intent is a good one. So what it means for the market and what it means for us, the reforms really are focused on home and auto. Um, we think that because there's a meaningful difference in market practices between new business and renewal, that in, in January, you'll see significant price dislocation, you know, and, and new business pricing is likely to go up uh, somewhat, you know, materially in my mind, while renewal pricing will, uh, will go down. The net effect of these changes is yet unclear. It's a very competitive marketplace and, uh, and we'll take a prudent approach, you know, as we approach this change. Uh, but this location, we think, is an opportunity uh, to grow our personal lines portfolio and uh, take advantage of that to improve price sophistication. So the teams in the UK are totally focused, uh, in my mind, and we spent a fair bit of time on that, Doug, when we were in the UK a few weeks back. Uh, team will be ready. And we're using this opportunity to lend Canadian pricing experts to support the good work of our teams in the UK. What we really like about the UK personal lines market is the fact that there's tremendous flexibility to modify prices and leverage pricing sophistication very quickly. In fact, much greater uh, than what you can see in most provinces here in Canada. So clearly, you know, our plan, Doug, is to intend uh, is to really uh, use all that flexibility to deploy the best science in predictive analytics. So overall, I think the reform is a positive one for the UK personal lines market in the long run. In the near term, you know, it, it'll be uh, windy. There'll be a fair bit of dislocation. But again, lots of moving pieces. We like that. And I think the team is ready for that in the UK. And just so basically what I'm getting at too is like when I hear you talk about dislocation, which I've heard you talk about many times, I always think of M&A and that's really not kind of the, the focus here. The, the focus is not when you think of dislocation and opportunity M&A, it's more taking advantage of a, a change in the marketplace to better your business essentially. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right, um, Doug. And and M&A, you know, depends on the extent of the dislocation in the market. But our comments, you know, were far more geared towards uh, day in day out uh, market activity. Yeah, and then second, just uh, on the prior year reserve developments, another quarter of strong results there, and you kind of had your ups and downs over the last few years. It feels like, you, you know, you, you've adjusted down your, your guidance in the past. Um, are, are we hitting into an, another level here? And can you talk a bit about some of the drivers in, and what you're expecting in terms of contribution from RSA on the, on the reserve development side? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think, Doug, it has not been the same number every quarter. I'll, I'll say this. There's no doubt about that. When you say up and down, uh, it, it varied over time. But if you look at the track record and if you look at every year, it's positive pretty much all the time. So I think I want to make sure that you know this is clear when we look at our historical track record. Um, structurally speaking, a lower interest rate environment uh, leads to a lower expectation of prior year development. I think that's one key element, you know, that drove the guidance we've provided between 1% and 3% over time. There's a number of moving pieces. We're being cautious. Maybe I'll let Patrick give you his perspective on, on PYD uh, in aggregate, and then we'll see if it covers the, uh, the elements of your question. Sure. Um, yeah, so as Charles was uh, introducing, you know, the uh, lower levels of uh, interest rates over the past two years until today uh, led us to provide guidance in the uh, 1% to 3% range for favorable PYD. On the other end, you know, over the past uh, few years with the pressure, um, inflation pressure in auto, and more recently, uh, the additional uncertainty around claims. And to be uh, specific here, we're talking the indirect effect of COVID-related claims, uh, you know, on the long tail line. We took a very prudent approach in the reserving in that context. So in the short term, this might create a little more volatility in, in the PYD, but our cautious approach uh, on these aspects give us a very good likelihood in our view um, to be on the higher part of the range of 1% to 3%. And that's for total IFC, including the RSA book, uh, but probably we can expect Canada to be slightly above what we will see uh, in, in the other parts of the book. Q2 was largely an illustration uh, of this. You know, there, it was held by a couple of large files, and uh, the fact as well that in short tail lines, we always expect to see a bit more of that in the first half of the year than in the second one, but I would say largely aligned with uh, uh, reflecting, I guess, that, that dynamic. Now, the last thing I would say is we need to be careful not to totally isolate PYD from the current accident year because reflecting additional risk in the reserves in the current accident year is what creates potentially more favorable PYD afterwards, um, you know, if and when the risk does not fully materialize. Yeah, I think it's a very good and an important point. I think when I look at the underlying performance uh, of the business today, I think in aggregate, we're not too far off from, from what the underlying uh, uh, is at the moment when PYD is in. Um, you know, on, on the UK uh, per se, we spend a lot of time 
uh, a number of us spent a lot of time on uh, looking at, at these reserves over the past few years. We're quite comfortable with where we are. We strengthened the balance sheet at closing. We bought an adverse development cover. The idea here is not because we were uncomfortable with reserves. It's more uh, with the fact that there's an unknown. Uh, we're, we're not, you know, from the UK. We haven't been involved historically. It's an, it's an organization that has a long history, and therefore there is some unknown. And uh, we felt that uh, having an adverse development cover similar to what we've done in the US was a good risk management practice as you enter uh, a new market. But we're comfortable with, uh, with the position we've taken uh, in the UK and believe I've established a degree of caution that's very consistent with uh, how, we, how we reserve in general. Obviously, if you're new in a market, you will take a more prudent approach uh, over time, and that will not be different uh, this time around. That's why you know, our perspective is within the aggregate range, as Patrick said, of one to three, should be at the upper end, and the Canadian business should, should in the near term anyways, uh, help us be at the upper end of that range. Appreciate the color. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Next question will be from Mario Mendoza at TD Securities. Please go ahead. Good afternoon. Uh, Louis Marcotte, prob probably best for you. I'm, I'm looking precisely at what uh, Charles just referred to when he said that took a conservative look at the balance sheet on closing. So I've been uh, focusing on note four of your financial statements, and obviously I'm not going to go to every line. There's a lot of complexity here. But could you speak to uh, – the magnitude of the adjustments made to RSA's claim liabilities from what you saw uh, on the financial statements to what you arrived at, the $11.6 or $11.7 billion of claims liabilities. Was there a meaningful increase in claims liabilities from what you saw on the financial statements to where you're at today? So um, the word meaningful is maybe questionable here, but what we have done in the uh, closing process was firstly align our accounting practices between ourselves and uh, the acquired uh, balance sheet. So they weren't necessarily uh, providing for the, the reserves the same way we were, and uh, we needed to, to have consistent accounting policies uh, and approaches across, and that drives most of the adjustments we've done. Uh, there were some uh, areas where we thought we, we should top up a bit, uh, which we have done, and this is what I think Charles refers to as, as strengthening. Um, but overall, I would say, um, you know, felt very comfortable in the uh, UK perimeter with where they were and just, you know, uh, topped up a bit where we thought it was needed. And then in Canada, aligning ourselves the, between the, how we viewed the, uh, the need for reserves uh, was aligned between the two, uh, those two countries. So um, I won't qualify specifically the magnitude here, but there was strengthening uh, and alignment needed uh, to bring this, the, the balance sheet to the same standard as ours. Yeah, and, and maybe, Mario, you know, when I say, you know, if you look at some of the strengthening we've done, I'd say two-thirds of it is probably Canada, and the bulk of it was accident benefit-driven in Ontario. And Mario, I think we've, uh, we've taken the street along over the past three, four years on the issues there. We've said that we felt that, um, um, you know, the industry was a bit late, so we were very consistent with our observation 
uh, with the RSA reserves, and then a third in the uh, UK and I market uh, focused on longer tail lines of business, commercial liability, just to make sure that we were on par with how we otherwise would have reserved. Yeah, my, my inclination and sort of the, the nature of the question is not so much that I think the company wasn't conservative, but rather that the company's been has been very conservative uh, insofar as like how this acquisition was accounted for. But maybe more generally, where I'm going with this is the, the PYD in personal auto and PYD generally has been good, and we've talked about that a little bit on this call. Um, I, I understand that that's not unique to Intact, that the industry as a whole seems to have been somewhat conservative in, in setting up the IBNR and personal auto over the last little while. So the nature of my question is this. Uh, can an industry experiencing this level of PYD uh, apply for pricing increases? Are those two things, can you actually do those two things simultaneously, record big PYD and apply for pricing increases at the same time? So um, you can. And so I think, Mario, if you go back to the industry results right to June 2020, there was adverse development. Uh, and I'm talking uh, automobile insurance in particular. You know, and, and if you look at uh, PYD for us in automobile insurance, indeed so far in, uh, in 2021, you know, we have 3.5 points of favorable development. Uh, and, and not that I want to bring back all the hard work we've done in the three, four years before that, but what you will see is that the PYD in the few years before that was you know, out of sync with the historical context because of inflation um, and was essentially flat. And, and therefore, pricing. So how does pricing work? Pricing works uh, in the following fashion. You go back, you take three to five years, the last three to five years, you project them in the future, uh, and you use that to figure out whether your prices are adequate. You know, and, and I would uh, suggest that if you look at the past five years where there's been uh, no favorable development or adverse development you know, at the industry level, you project them in the future, you restore uh, performance for driving, the answer is if you do your job properly from an actuarial point of view, you can have favorable development in a year and seek rate increases over time. Now, there's a lot of actuaries in this call. Uh, if I'm wrong, guys, you can <laughs> correct me, but uh, the mechanics of this would suggest you can. Thank you. Thank you. Next question will be from Tom McKinnon at BMO. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, just, just to start off, just to be clear, the increase in the CAT guidance has nothing to do with your NOIP secretion that you're expecting from the RSA acquisition. Is that, is that correct? Uh, um, so, I mean, we, uh, um, that was all factored in, but you're just announcing that to the street. But all that uh, 570 CAT stuff is factored in when you did your NOIP secretion, correct? Correct. 100% of them. Yeah, okay. Just wanted to be, make sure everybody's clear on that. Um, now, as you've looked further at the uh, um, the RSA portfolio in particular, the $250 million in expense synergies, 
doesn't have anything to do with improving the loss ratio at RSA or uh, really uh, improving the yields at RSA. Do you have any update as to um, uh, what the potential is for um, those kind of improvements uh, as you've uh, you know as you've gone another three months here with uh, d digging into these portfolios? Yeah, Tom. Uh, thanks for your your question. It's the daily question uh, at Intact, and we want to make sure we leave nothing off the table. To be clear, but uh, why don't I ask Louis to share his perspective, and then I'll add some color. Thanks, Charles. So on the uh, 250, so that number is still the uh, the target we're aiming for. You're right; it is largely expense uh, driven, and uh, we have not yet uh, update, updated any guidance for. Uh, loss ratio improvements. You know, those are the ones we're working on, but they may be a bit longer to develop as we uh, study the data and compare it to ours. I, I am the one asking the question to Charles every day and how I can reflect that in my estimates, but still uh, waiting for those uh, estimates to come back. Uh, but at this point, we're sticking to the expense synergies of 250, working on making sure that those are delivered as quickly as possible, and uh, our visibility on those is, is quite strong. So we're not uh, we're very confident in realizing them, uh, and then the loss ratio ones will be incremental to those uh, synergies. Yeah, on the expense side, uh, given where we are in the int integration, like I'm very comfortable uh, with those because we have a bottom-up view uh, of the synergies we can generate on the expense side of things. We're tracking that on a monthly basis, and uh, a process we're very very familiar with. On the loss ratio uh, front, it's clear that, uh, that there are opportunities here. We're moving fast in bringing the business on our platform in Canada and in the UK. I mean, we've done a lot of work with the team in the past few months. Um, you know, it's been demanding, no, no doubt about that for the team, but uh, they had really good momentum. I'm very pleased with the action plans they have. We've got detailed metrics to keep track of the performance improvement uh, plan, and and um, and I see some upside in the in the UKNI uh, portfolio as well. Now, you know, uh, I think that the upside in my mind is good, and we'll, we'll try to get as much as we can. And the market, I think, is conducive. I see this also as a way to. Uh, upset potential surprises. So, you know, we want to refrain at this stage from updating uh, views on accretion and loss ratio improvement, but uh, we're certainly focused on those. And the yield performance or the in, any way of increasing the yield on the RSA portfolio is pretty low. Yeah, absolutely. So we're working on this. We're working on the uh, the asset mix. Of course, we've uh, reset the yields to the current yields upon the acquisition, so that you know took them down to market yields essentially. Uh, but as we um, integrate the portfolios together, we are moving to a, uh, a bit more of an of an intact mix uh, over time, and uh, we are sort of t leveraging some of the opportunities and expertise they have at uh, at RSA to move it up. At this point, our guidance uh, reflects some of the asset mix uh, that will be taking place. In the next uh, six to 12 months, uh, that was in my 100 million uh, investment income I shared with you earlier. Um, and then we're going to be working on, you know, trying to uh, op optimize that a bit further and creep it up. At this point, though, we're sticking to the 100 for the next, uh, for this year at least. 
Yeah, so Werner, uh, Moleman, and, and Dave Tremblay, who run the asset side uh, here at NTAC, have been um, totally on top of the integration. First order of business, obviously, is governance and uh, the operational integration of the asset side. We've done a big um, asset optimization exercise in the past few months. There are indeed opportunities. As you know, our thought process on the asset side is total after-tax return. Uh, optimized for a regulatory capital requirement, local tax regime, uh, and obviously risk. And so uh, the fact that we're operating across really three big platforms creates opportunities to optimize the mix. We've got a plan for that, and uh, we'll start to execute on it in the coming weeks. Okay, and the, and the quick follow-up is on the integration costs. Were those, were those $35 million in the quarter? Because... I think that's what you said because it shows acquisition, integration, restructuring costs as being 138 million in the quarter. So maybe you can uh, uh, describe what the differences are and uh, whether how um, recurring this 138 number in this quarter will be. So the 138 includes the acquisition costs as well for the transaction. So it's the acquisition part of the uh, the expense. There are also some integration uh, from prior acquisitions that are still going in there. And uh, specifically for RSA, it was 35. And, um, and then what we expect in the future quarters, not so much on the other restructuring costs, but on the RSA one is what I guided to half of the, uh, the guidance of 1.5 to 1.7 times synergies. And no acquisition costs that would have been baked into the second quarter number, I assume. Correct? Oh, they're, they're largely uh, done. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Next question will be from Jamie Gloin at National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hi, Jamie. Yeah, thanks. Uh, just a couple of quick clarification questions first. The uh, the CAT guidance increasing from 300 to 570. Did, did you state how much of that increase is in Canada and how much is in UKI? We have not. We. Uh... We sort of stayed away from that, and simply because you know this, the the perimeters give us a bit more diversification opportunities. Not sure whether they'll spike in one country or the other, so we we stuck to uh, an overall theme and provided guidance in terms of personal and and timing, but we stayed away from the uh, the countries. To be fair, if I was to to model something, maybe I'd put uh, two thirds in Canada, uh, one third in in the UK, but we're sort of not uh, committing to it in terms of uh, you know, being a firm commitment here, it's it's more of a, a bit of a guidance. Rather than that, I wouldn't go further than that. And Understood. Uh, and then in terms of the, the Denmark asset sale, um, is is the valuation of that uh, of that asset, and the, I'm assuming there's a gain that will be attached to it as part of the transaction, is that in the book value as it's stated today, or should we expect to see a gain on Denmark uh, in the uh, in the next year when it closes. So the uh, the asset our share of the asset is recorded on the uh, opening balance sheet at the value that was uh, agreed upon with uh, our partner Trig. Uh, so that's how the value there comes up. The transaction has been announced is not closed yet. So there's a couple of uh, conditions to get to closing, and that's expected uh, somewhere early in 2022, probably end of Q1 or early Q2. And um, the difference between the price agreed to on the sale 
and the value that we've agreed to with Trig will be uh, recorded in at that time of closing. Yeah, I think okay. what I mentioned in my remarks, uh, Jamie, is that um, you know when this uh, this transaction at the aggregate level from an economics point of view should help the IRR by 1.5 points, um, and and as a result, you know if you're consistent, then then you would expect a gain uh, when we close. Good, uh, on, on the same page on that front. Um, in terms of the, the distribution uh, income in this quarter, uh, significantly higher, can you, can you break out or, uh, or walk us through uh, the drivers of that gain? Uh, I'm seeing commissions on variable revenues, you know, just sort of explain what that is and then how much is, how much is on-site contributing to, uh, to the upside here? Um, thanks for the question, Jamie. So uh, quite happy with the uh, the growth here we're seeing in our distribution income, very well aligned with our objective of growing distribution uh, and to add a strong earning stream that support our mid-teens uh, ROE. So this is clearly going in the right direction. It grew 51% in Q2, and I would say about 33% of the 51, uh, or 33 points of the 51, is really driven by the variable commissions that has been uh, part of our uh, underwriting performance so far. So you see it in the, uh, in the uh, insurance business with an extra, an extra uh, expense ratio or a higher ex uh, expense ratio uh, from commissions. And this comes back in the distribution income. And of the 51%, 33 points are driven by these uh, variable commissions. The, uh, there's another 13 points that's driven by what we consider to be organic growth uh, of the business. And uh, you'll recall last year in the second half of the year, we had uh, pretty solid uh, organic growth in our distribution uh, network. And this is, you know, carrying on in the, uh, the first half of the year. So uh, those are the two main drivers. You ask about onside. So interestingly, onside, you remember when we bought it, was meant to be a counter-cyclical uh, earning stream when we had uh, multiple cat events. Well, Q or half, half year one has been fairly quiet on the weather side. So on-site has been uh, probably a bit more quiet than, uh, than we wanted, um, so has not been a huge contributor to the, uh, the growth in, in Q2 uh, so far. There's, there's lots of potential for on-site going forward, um, and particularly with the, uh, the RSA acquisition, but from a Q2 point of view, is not a big uh, driver. The last comment I'll make there is, of course, uh, 51 looks really good, it is, uh, but we're also comparing to Q2 last year which uh, was a tough quarter from a distribution point of view. You might remember we were very cautious in our uh, earnings expectation there given the uncertainty around COVID. So uh, not only are, you know, we have good variable commissions, we have good organic growth, but we're comparing to a, a weak uh, Q2 last year. So those are the, uh, the main drivers. And I would say we're guiding right now to 10 to 12% growth in the second half of the year. Uh, and that's really uh, taking into account that last year's H2 was very strong. And uh, if you combine 10 to 12% growth in H2 with what we've done so far to date, this business is growing north of 25% for the full year. So a uh, big contributor to our earnings growth. Thanks, Louis. I think there's a couple of things that are worth highlighting uh, in this. The organic growth of BrokerLink is really strong and clearly uh, commercial lines uh, hard market is helpful and 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 c really conducive 
to strong performance and distribution. Might be good, Darren, if you highlight your view on the state of the commercial lines market. And the other point I think we should touch on is because we're bringing on-site into the question, just to help you visualize what we can do with on-site, I'll ask Patrick to talk about what's going on in BC, uh, in Lytton, and, and what can be done. So, Darren, maybe uh, quickly. Yeah, thanks, Charles. I mean, I think I would describe the conditions in Q2 as very consistent with Q1. Uh, a hard market north and south of the border, uh, capacity continues to be tight, uh, rate increases are very consistent uh, from, from Q2 to Q1, and we see no signs of that abating at all. Um, and, and really strong performance from a rate standpoint north and south of the border. Now, obviously, you've got to be careful in terms of the portfolio in the U.S. compared to some of the other benchmarks that are out there. I mean, different uh, segments of the portfolio are quite strong. I think, I mean, accident is one area that due to profitability, there's a little bit of pressure from a rate standpoint. But again, that's a line of business that's operated consistently in the 80s, so uh, no surprise there. But otherwise, outside of that, we're pushing uh, well into the double-digit range uh, in, in other lines, and that's very consistent with what we've seen in the last quarter, but also in the last 12 months prior as well. And we're seeing good strength in the, uh, in the UK as well. Maybe on on-site, uh, Patrick. Yeah, just to illustrate uh, a little bit, we uh, talked, I think, in the remarks about the uh, wildfire in Lytton, BC that happened in the last uh, few days of uh, the quarter in June. Uh, first of all, just to uh, reiterate that the full uh, estimate of the ultimate cost of that was reflected in Q2. But from an operational perspective, we were able to uh, deploy our internal CAT team, but also uh, our national uh, capacity uh, of on-site to support uh, the team of Litton. Uh, examples of what this brings to the response is uh, on-site has been retained to provide all the security fencing and checkpoints in the city were been retained as well by the Lytton First Nation to coordinate all the white goods removal, fridges and freezers, which uh, always require special handling. And we continue to work very closely, both with our internal CAT team and on-site uh, with, with the town of Lytton and Lytton First Nation, as well as uh, uh, Team Rubicon, who is uh, an organization of military veterans leading the response for the industry there. So we've been uh, uh, deploying a lot of capacity to support our, our customers who are facing, obviously, a difficult time. Thanks, Patrick. Okay, great. I'll, uh, that was very good. I'll requeue. No further questions, Jamie? Uh, well, actually, if, if <laughs> nobody else, I, uh, I, I did want to touch on one, uh, one aspect, and that's the, uh, the ROE objective. Um, 500 basis points. Uh, I presume that applies to all of or each of Canada, U.S., U.K. Uh, and I was just hoping you could uh, dive into uh, what that means from an ROE perspective in each geography and, uh, and, and perhaps maybe timelines around that. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, you know, we, we're firm on the ROE outperformance uh, objective of 500 basis points every year. That's the first point. Our, as you know, outperformance, Jamie, is a, is a mindset, um, and it's driving the strategic choices we're making, the investments we're making on the data front, uh, on the AI front, 
risk selection, claims and supply chain management. No change. And this is the lens we use uh, when we go in other markets uh, as well. So if you look at the work we've done and the work we'll do with Scott and team, uh, we're really focused on risk selection. And we're working with uh, Carl Hegelson, really strong, the claims head of the, um, of the UK business uh, as well, to help him create outperformance there. So there's no change. Obviously, our outperformance position in Canada is really strong. And uh, as we increase, our scale advantage will be now 2.5-ish times bigger uh, than number two. This is really helpful uh, to expand our advantage will be focused on this. If you look at the U.S., um, in the U.S., from my perspective, we have created now close to uh, four-ish points of combined ratio advantage against our peers in, in specialty lines. I don't think we're 100% there, but we're clearly well on our way. And I think in the U.K., we'll need, uh, you know, probably three-ish years, uh, in my mind, to go from being in the industry pack to creating some distance. And, and that is the definition of success for us. So a bit of headwind, I would say, in terms of ROE of performance as you enter new jurisdictions. But, um, but I think there's no doubt as to uh, what success looks like. And this shapes where our time, our energy, and where money goes. I can add, Charles, so operating basis still aiming for that mid, uh, mid-teens level and uh, confident that we can maintain that in the current uh, environment. So I think that's strong. When we look at outperformance, what we're building now is, in fact, a uh, blended uh, industry ROE that will in- into integrate a weighted uh, level of in- industry ROE in the U.S. and then eventually industry ROE in the U.K. that we'll compare ourselves to. So publicly, because remember, we manage our balance sheet centrally uh, from, uh, you know, all the assets is essentially managed centrally. And therefore, the ROE of IFC is the one we want to compare to. And the best uh, comparative for us would be a blended ROE between the three uh, perimeters we operate in. So we're building that and, and trying to build that. It's a bit difficult to have industry, good industry data in the UK right now. Uh, but we're putting those together, and you'll see them getting published more and more uh, over time in our, in our financial uh, reports. So you'll be able to see how we track. I would say most importantly on the operating ROE part, uh, that is still, uh, you know, uh, firmly in the mid-teens range going forward. Yeah, I I think it's important to keep in mind outperformance is the mindset, but at the end of the day, if outperformance leads in certain jurisdictions to single-digit ROE, it's not good enough. Uh, And we're not shying away from being rewarded for the risk we're taking, even if we outperform. And uh, I think there's work to be done, but those two core principles are the lenses we're using to assess the footprint uh, at the moment and, and how we're positioned in each market where we operate. That's a great answer, and uh, look forward to the upcoming disclosures. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And at this time, Mr. Anderson, we have no other questions. Please proceed. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Following the call, a telephone replay will be available for one week, and the webcast will be archived on our website for one year. Transcripts will also be available on the website in the financial reports and filings section. Lastly, we'll be hosting an investor day on Tuesday, November 30th. Um, The event will be held virtually and will be accessible via webcast. 
More details on the 2021 Investor Day will be available on our website in the coming weeks, and we look forward to welcoming you at the event. Finally, our third quarter 2021 results are scheduled to be released after market close on Tuesday, November 9th. So thank you again, and this concludes today's call. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. Ladies and gentlemen, this does indeed conclude your conference call for today. Once again, thank you for attending, and at this time we do ask that you please disconnect your lines. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.